0: Well, good morning, everyone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in your Son, Jesus Christ, are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We ask now that you would enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit and grant us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth through that same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 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 Well, if you don't know me, you've already seen my teeth up close and it's very distinctive. I was playing the guitar with my teeth as a teenager, imitating my great hero Jimi Hendrix and uh, chipped one of the front ones and felt it come out. Anyway, here we are. Now, Saving Private Ryan is an epic war film, one of the great ones. It's set during the invasion of Normandy in World War II. By the way, if you haven't seen this film... Don't worry, I'm just about to spoil it for you. I'll tell you what happens at the end. It follows the story of Captain John Miller, who's played by Tom Hanks, and his squad as they search for a young paratrooper called James Ryan, played by Matt Damon. Uh, And Private Ryan is one of four brothers. All four of them have gone to war, and three of the others, the other three have died in combat. And the American army has a policy to protect the final member of a family in that situation. So they're searching for this one, the one remaining brother out of four. Now this film is a very powerful depiction of the horrors of war, but it's also equally powerful in its depiction of a core value on which many people built their lives. At the end of the film, Miller is wounded and he lies dying. He's led the search for Ryan with incredible bravery. Many sacrifices have been made. Lives have been lost. And finally they've found him. And they've got this young man, Ryan. And as he d- lies dying, he looks Ryan in the eye. And he whispers, James, earn this. Earn it. The music swells and before your eyes, Ryan turns from a young man in his 20s to an old man. You can see him at the, uh, the autumn of his life. He's now standing in a vast military graveyard full of white crosses as far as the eye can see his wife comes to his side and she peers over his shoulder and sees the, the grave and sees on it the name Captain John Miller and she wonders what's going on and her husband turns and says to her in a rather pleading way, tell me I have led a good life what? tell me I'm a good man and she looks deep into his eyes and says you are Have I earned it? Have I lived a good enough life? And that principle is is how most people actually live their lives deep down. And that is how most religion works. Most religion, most way most people's live, can, can be summed up in a single word, which is this. Do. You've got to do it. You've got to do the right thing. You've got to be good. But actually, friends, this is a deeply flawed way for us to try and live. Because if we try and earn it, if we try and live a good life, that that effort itself is a recipe for pride in our hearts, for self-justification, and for bitter failure. If you are striving to earn the right to good things, then when you think you've earned them, you're really rather pleased with yourself. And you're subject to pride, which is a terrible thing. But you know you can't keep it up for long because we all fail and sin in so many ways. So when you know you're not living up to the standard, you become defensive and angry. And because you think you're, you're the one that's earning it, you're harsh and you're critical of people who you think haven't lived up to the standard because you have tried so very, very hard to be good. So you see, this core value undermines itself. It's deeply flawed, and it's ultimately fruitless. Earn it? Be a good man or woman? How could any of us live a life that was good enough? And this is the way that most people live, and the message underneath it all is do. You've got to do more. You've got to do right. Do, do, do. But there's another way. And it's, it's the opposite of do. And it's called the good news or the glad tidings or the gospel. And its message is not do but done. It's done. Young person here has just repeated it back to me. Well done, son. You've got the message. John chapter 1 is a beautiful summary of this gospel, this message of how Jesus has done what we couldn't do and done it for us. And if what I say today is, seems familiar to those of you here who are already committed Christians, that's because it should be. It's an outline of this gospel. And this news, according to Martin Luther, is the central article of the Christian faith. We mo- most necessary is it that we learn it well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. That's typical Martin Luther. Why do we need to beat the gospel into our heads continually? Because we don't really get it. Our hearts, my heart, your heart, quickly and instinctively forgets the true gospel. We default to living by the old path. Do, the way of self-justification. And that's at the root of most religions and the secular vision of life. They all say do and you will live. But the gospel says Jesus has done it. Now you can live. It's completely the other way around. Not do, but done. So as we're on the brink of a new year and we're starting a new series this morning, I want to just remind you of three things. Uh, This passage in John chapter 1 is really beautifully tied to Christmas because we've been thinking about how Jesus became a man, the incarnation. And John picks up there and he expounds it in great depth. We can't really do it justice, to be honest, but we're going to have a go. And we've got three simple points. Who Jesus is, what Jesus. Jesus did and why Jesus came. And the fusion and the JF, you've got a sheet which John has brilliantly put together and the the points there at the bottom of the page, three points. Who Jesus is, what Jesus did and why Jesus came. The first one's the longest, just to warn you. Who Jesus is, we learn he's God the Son and God the man. God the Son, intimacy and Glory. The first thing we learn from John is the awesome grandeur of Jesus of Nazareth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. Jesus Christ here is introduced as the Word. The Greek word underneath this is a word you all know, logos. It's where we get our word logo. Logos, the Word. Jesus here, at the start, he doesn't even mention his name. He just calls him the Word. Now, if you think about words, your words are part of you, aren't they? I mean, they're your words. And uh, you think them. You, can, you think in words, you shape words, and you speak words, and you can feel words coming out of your mouth. You know, your words are part of you. But words also have life, don't they? They have a life of their own. They have a certain amount of power. Have you ever said something that you wished you could take back? You just wish you could reel that word back in, but it was out. Ah! And then it came back to bite you later. Once those words are out of your mouth, they have a life of their own. They have the power to create situations. I love you. Three words can do a lot. I can't stand you. Four words can do even more. You're fired. I'm glad you think that's funny, Colin. That's, there's two words that can change a situation. John starts off by describing Jesus as the word... And he says everything in creation is made through him. Every single thing that has ever been made was made through Jesus Christ. You know, we have got so much more knowledge now, don't we, of the cosmos and the number of stars and galaxies. It's mind blowing. And the Bible here is saying that Jesus Christ created it all, it was made through him. Notice important that the Word Himself has not been created, He's the only thing that's not created. He's always been with God. In fact, John takes us back to the very earliest point in the Bible because he deliberately echoes Genesis chapter 1, right at the back at the very beginning of the Bible, the same words, in the beginning. In the beginning, and there it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So you see John's making a pretty big claim here. Genesis 1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John says, in the beginning the Word created the heavens and the earth. I think we know what he's saying. God, the sun. Before hydrogen and helium and atoms and stars, he reaches back to a time that when there was only God, this word was there. And in the simplest and most profound statement, John says, the word was with God and he was God. The word was with God and he was God. So Jesus Christ existed before time and space, and he has always been with God and he always was God. Notice those two statements are very carefully put side by side. The Quran says, People of the book, the Quran calls uh, Christians people of the book. People of the book, do not exceed the limits of devotion in your religion or say anything about God which is not the truth. Jesus, son of Mary, is only a messenger of God. His word. And a spirit from him, whom he conveyed to Mary. Do not say that there are three gods. It is better for you to stop believing in the Trinity. There is only one God. He is too glorious to give birth to a son. Now, we agree with our Muslim friends on one thing that's very important there are not three gods, there is only one. But our understanding of this one true God is totally different. The nature of God is unique. And we shouldn't expect him to be like the rest of his creation, should we? Why should he be the same as the rest of us? He is unlike any other being. His nature is triune. He is a triunity, a unity of three persons in one. Three in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit have always existed. There never was a time when the Son was not. There never was a time when the Spirit was not. There never was a time when the Father was not. They have lived together forever in a dance of joy and harmony and love. The three-in-one God is a supremely happy being. He created the universe to share his love and happiness with creatures who were like him, human beings. And that is why we too are wired for love and joy and community, because we're like him. And that is the rich reality behind verse 18, which Kathy just read. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Now this word here, the closest relationship with the Father, the word it actually says is bosom. (laughs) He is in the bosom of the Father. Same word is used back in John chapter 13. There, Jesus is at the meal. You remember the Last Supper? And he's reclining with his disciples. Everybody's seen that painting by Leonardo da Vinci. You know, they're all lined up. And there's Jesus in the middle. And then one who looks a bit crooked is on the side. That's Judas. It wasn't really like that. They would recline. They, men would, and, and women, when at dinner, would lie down. And so Jesus was lying on a bench. And the other guys, they're eating, lying down, not like us, sitting up. And the one who was his closest friend, who we know his name was John, leaned against him. See, men in those cultures are much more happy to be tactile. Men, even today in parts of Africa, will hold hands walking down the street. There's great affection, physical affection. Jesus is troubled. He's, He's predicted that one of his followers is going to betray him. And this disciple who's reclining at table close to Jesus leans back, against and asks him who it is. It's the position of closest intimacy. And in John 1.18, John says, the Son, Jesus, has always been in the closest, deepest intimacy with God the Father. But he also is God. And this means that he is glorious. We've seen that in verse 14. The word made, became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only son the people who spent time with jesus saw something about him that was absolutely unique sometimes it terrified them they saw that he was glorious and in the bible only god is ultimately glorious in chapter 2 the wedding you remember the water into wine at the wedding we're going to be i'm sure that'll be that'll be preached on in a couple of weeks here At the end of that great miracle, his first miracle, the disciples, it says, saw his glory and they put their faith in him. This is who Jesus is. God the Son with all the glory and intimacy with God in keeping with his nature. He's God the Son but he's also God the man. God the man. Look with me again at verse 14. The word became flesh. Very powerful language. It's not saying that Jesus sort of put on flesh like you put on your dressing gown in the morning, covering up what's really underneath. It's not that Jesus, the word, sort of translated into flesh and became something different than what he was before. It's a complete identification. He, the word, became flesh and remained fully God and fully man. The eternal word of God took our humanity fully upon himself, except for our sins. He became flesh and blood, and he he stayed it. He embraced who we are. He was enfolded and united with our humanity. 16th century uh, French reformer John Calvin wrote this. God's natural son fashioned for himself a body from our body, flesh from our flesh, bones from our bones, that he might be one with us ungrudgingly he took our nature upon himself to impart to us what was his and to become both son of God and son of man in common with us you know, there are some very young babies in this church I think I heard one of them earlier on you can pick that baby up and put it on your shoulder and pat their back they might smile they might burp they might throw up. They might look a bit dopey. Cry for some milk. There was a time when the eternal word of God was the same size. He, when he was utterly reliant on his mother's milk. When he was utterly weak and helpless. He needed to be fed, dressed and changed. There was a time when the eternal Word of God joined himself to a woman's egg. And if you can see on your sheet or in your Bible, a full stop. Can you see a full stop? That's about the size of a woman's egg in her womb. About 0.14 millimeters. He joined himself to that. Joseph was not involved in this pregnancy. It was only The only ever virgin birth and only a creator God could bring it about. Do you find it hard to believe? Do you find it hard to conceive of? Sorry, I couldn't resist that. Join the club. Here's what one of the great intellectuals of the 20th century, C.S. Lewis, said about it. The central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or demonstrates it, or results from it. Makes sense. Lewis points out that it's impossible to estimate how probable the incarnation is. You can't put odds on it. It's like asking whether the existence of nature is intrinsically probable. The whole creation of the universe only happened once. Was it probable? You can't put a stat on it. But you can say this. The creator who spoke the universe into being is capable of this unique act of becoming a man. We're not meant to understand it fully, but we are meant to wonder at it. Here's the words of a a poet, Charles Wesley. Let earth and heaven combine, angels and men agree, to praise in songs divine the incarnate deity. Our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. He laid his glory by, He wrapped him in our clay, unmarked by human eye, the latent Godhead lay. Infant of days, he here became and bore the mild Emmanuel's name. Who is Jesus? This is the end of the first point fusion and adventurers and everybody else. Who is Jesus? He's God the Son, he's God the man. That is who he is. But what was the point? What did Jesus achieve by it? Why did he come? What Jesus did, my second point, what Jesus did. We learn here that he came all the way down. He came as light of the world. And that light was revealed to people, rejected by people, but received by some. It was revealed. Let me tell you the difference between Christianity and every other faith. Religion has been defined as man searching for God. Humankind searching for God. And all of the great religions are a great quest A search for God. But Christianity is different. The direction of travel is the other way round. Christianity is God seeking humankind. He's the seeker, showing himself to us, drawing near to us, illumining our hearts and minds, reaching out to us, drawing us in, embracing us. And we see this in this reading today, verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He was in the world. Jesus reveals the truth about God to us by coming to us, walking with us, being one of us. We don't just get a great book with Christianity, a wonderful book, do we do. We don't just get a book full of inspirational thoughts about God. We get God himself come to us as one of us to reveal the truth to us, the truth about God and the truth about ourselves. That's light. It's the light we need, without which we died. And verse 9 says it's for everyone. The light that gives light to everyone, every man, woman, and child on this planet Every, it's not localized and particularized to one particular time or place or culture. The light of Jesus is universal. It's for all of us. It's intended to illuminate the mind of everyone. It never goes out of date, nor is it bound to a certain tradition. And when this light comes into a human life, it transforms people regardless of who they are or what they have done. And we've known people in this church, dozens of people in this church for whom this has happened. So if you're dubious about the... the, the uh, plausibility of what I'm saying this morning uh, and you're quite right to be skeptical keep digging but also look at the lives of people who have been changed by knowing Jesus Christ very hard to deny that evidence there's a man in this church who was a a well known scoundrel in Chesington. he was an addict, he was a broken man, he found himself one day in a crack house in Chesington, and he heard a voice telling him to get up and leave He came to know Jesus Christ, and he is absolutely transformed. The light came into his darkness. Amen? The light comes in. It transforms people. comes into the darkness. You see, what Jesus did was he came all the way down. He came down. He came from a great height. As the eternal Son of God, he lived for all eternity with his Father and the Spirit. He was beyond time and space. But he stooped low. He became a man. He did not exploit his glory. He concealed it within his humanity. But he did not stop there. Because this light was rejected most cruelly. He stooped still lower, stooping to death. Even to death on a cross. Crucifixion was a punishment for slaves, the worst of criminals. Not for citizens. But the eternal Son of God took to himself our humanity and died upon a slave's cross. This was his humiliation, down from eternity to time, down from the heavens to the earth, down to humanity, down to death, down even to the death of the cross. And he came with resolve. He set his face to Jerusalem. He stopped Peter using his sword against the men who came to arrest him. He refused to defend himself against his prosecutors. He restrained his power, not calling upon angels to rescue him. The road to the cross that he chose was no accident. Suffering didn't happen to the Lord Jesus, it was something that he did. No one took his life from him, he laid it down of his own accord. His death was not his failure, he was not a victim. His death had a purpose. He came to lift and carry and bear your sins far away. Their guilt, their punishment, their shame. To drink down the cup of God's anger for you until every drop was gone. His choice of this path can only be explained by love. His love for the Father, desiring to obey his will. And his love for the lost sheep he came to find. Determining to die their death for their deliverance. This is the path he was following as he rode into Jerusalem. Most of those words were from a guy, a, a, a theologian called Gary Williams, and are, I think the best short summary of what Jesus did. Who he was? God the Son, the eternal Son. God the man became flesh. What he did, he came. All the way down, the light came into the darkness. Why did he do it? Thirdly, finally, why Jesus came? To give us grace. To give you grace. Look at verse 14 again. The word, that's Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here it says that this word lived or dwelled among us. He made his dwelling among us. But the author here actually chose a really unusual word to describe what Jesus did. He doesn't use the normal word for living or dwelling. He chooses this really unusual word. It hardly ever occurs. And it's a word that meant to set up a tent to pitch a tent he took up residence with us in a tent now why does he use this odd word every word in the bible has meaning you know this is deliberate John is calling to mind the time of the Israelites 1400 years before after the exodus rescued from slavery in Egypt God promised to be with them and be their God he guided them he protected them. He, he led them by day in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire at night. And he gave them instructions for a special tent to be constructed. It was called the tabernacle. It was a beautiful tent. They put all their best materials into it. The design, the blueprint was from God himself. And God said, I will come and take up residence. I will dwell with you in, this, in a special way in this tent. it was a prototype temple it was so glorious that when God took up residence there nobody could go into the inner chamber this is the word that John uses here the word became flesh and he tented among us he's recalling that tent but at that time Moses wanted more Moses yearned to know God more fully he begged God let me see you let me see your glory he was asking let me see the real you Lord But God warned him that his presence was so holy and so overwhelming that no mortal could stand it. It would be impossible for Moses to see and stand and comprehend the true nature of God. But God made a concession to him. He said, "Um, you hide in this this cleft in a rock and I'll pass by and you'll just see my goodness, the sum of my, my nature in a flash. And in Exodus 33 Moses hid in this cleft in the rock and God passed by and God revealed his glorious nature in words. This is what he said. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed his name. He passed before him and said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And Moses bowed his head to the earth and worshipped. God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is grace and truth. And John recalls all this when he writes that God tented among us and we've seen his glory and that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of steadfast love, kindness, mercy and reliable truth, light revelation trustworthy. Jesus, it says, is full of these qualities. He's full of grace and truth. Verse 16 goes on and says, out of his fullness, we have all received grace. It says in our translation here, in place of grace already given, but actually a better translation would be the ESV or some others, grace upon grace, grace on top of grace, an accumulation God's law given to us by Moses was a good good gift. It points us in the right direction, but it didn't do enough for us. It couldn't take us to heaven. On its own, it had no power to save. For that, we need something more. We need the grace of Jesus. So, verse 17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Why did he come all the way down? Because there was no one else to save us. Because there is no salvation without the triune God. If God were not triune, if he had no son to die in our place, what then? God would have had to make a third party suffer. We would have had to provide one of us because God could not. And that's not grace because we'd be stumping up the substitute ourselves. And it's not possible because no one of us is good enough. The cross is only possible because God is Trinity. You know, sometimes we present the story of the gospel like it's a story of a heavenly headmaster who's caught us smoking behind the bike sheds, and now we're going to the office and we're going to get in trouble. But a nice classmate called Jesus came along, and instead he took our caning for us. So God's the heavenly headmaster, and being a Christian is about keeping the rules, being acceptable pupils sent home with a clean report. But according to John, God is an eternal father who loved his son eternally. And so the salvation that he offers you is this. Becoming a son or daughter of God. Nothing less than adoption. Jesus didn't come to make you a good pupil who went home with a nice report. It says in verse 12, he came to give us the right to become children of God. Children born not by natural descent or a husband's will, but God's will to adopt you. Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard told the story of a king who fell in love with a humble maiden, a poor maiden. And he dreamed about her. He dreamed of winning her love. He thought about his options. The first strategy, which was most obvious, was the direct one. He would dazzle her, show up with his impressive retinue, dressed as a king in his crown and his robes, display his wealth, Announce his love, surely that would overwhelm her. But that was precisely the problem. If she responded as he hoped, how could he ever be sure whether she really loved him, the king, or just the wealth and privilege? So he thought about a second strategy. He would go in disguise. He would dress up as a beggar. He would not be accompanied by servants or attendants. He would cover his robes with rags and hope to woo her But he realized that wasn't the answer either. At best, she would fall in love with the beggar, and it was just a disguise. It wasn't who he really was. It was a deception. He's the king. So he agonized over it, and he came up with a third way, the reverse approach. He would bring her up to his social level. Through some secret means, he would arrange to give her a noble title and fabulous wealth. She would become part of the aristocracy then he could approach her as an equal with the hope that she would respond in love but the danger of this was that it would imply she wasn't good enough before as a humble maiden and yet that was actually as a humble maiden that he loved her so finally he came to a radical conclusion the only way that could succeed he would do that which was unthinkable the thing that no earthly king has ever done he would descend from his throne, empty himself of all his wealth and privilege, and in this way he would identify with the humble maiden. Not by pretending to be poor, but by actually becoming poor. He would share her lot. He would share her suffering. He would share her poverty. He would take the initiative and become truly equal to her. If in that way he were, would then be able to secure her love. But this is the unfathomable nature of love, says Kierkegaard, that it desires equality with the beloved, not simply in jest, but in earnest and in truth. And that is what Jesus Christ did. He loved you so much that he came all the way down, took on your nature, died in your place to win you. This is grace upon grace. Samuel Crossman wrote these words in 1664, and they're just as fresh today. My song is love unknown, my Saviour's love to me, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? He came from his blessed throne salvation to bestow, but men made strange, and none the longed for Christ would know. But oh my friend, my friend indeed, who at my need his life did spend. You didn't earn it. You never could. It was all of grace. Jesus did it all for you. It's done. Grace abounding to the chief of sinners. Grace piled on top of grace, a fountain of grace that never runs dry, God's love, kindness, mercy. This is a transformational grace. It's not about do, which leads to pride and insecurity and self-justification. It's about done, which leads to a totally different quality of life. Let me give you a very homely illustration. After 15 years... Our marriage was in very bad shape. Which isn't a good thing that's had to be happening when you're a pastor. Because everyone expects you to have a perfect marriage, don't they? It really wasn't. It was in very bad shape. My wife was not far from walking away. The marriage was getting threadbare. Uh, old habits were irritating. We were grumpy. We were sharp. We were snarky. We were always pointing out failure. We held on to grudges. We did wrong both on both sides. Finally, we realize the root problem. We have stopped dealing with each other out of grace. And so the well ran dry. Hard to change when you've got into that habit, but you can. If someone greater than you show grace to you, show grace to that other person, and the whole thing can turn around. I've seen it. I've seen it. Pastor Tim Keller explained the gospel to a a very... uh, Successful businesswoman on Wall Street, she said, I'm afraid, I'm afraid of it because if this is true, there is no limit to what Jesus could ask of me. This is the gospel which we have to remind ourselves of, teach each other, and beat into our heads continually. It is not do but done. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. God bless you in 2024. Let's live that grace, shall we? And let's grow as a church that is a place full of grace. Horace is going to come and lead us in prayer. Thank you.